Okay, we're back. The final Final Fantasy VI episode at long last. Um, ben, you just beat Kefka. How do you feel? I feel good. I feel good. I'm going to go to Disneyland after this. <laughs> I was going to say something about Disneyland and realized, no, I can't go to Disneyland right now. That's not responsible. <laughs> no, no, it is not. Houses and do other, play other video games and do other good stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, we've been talking about this game for like a year, I realized, when I was going through some of the the audio from the start of the game that we recorded it was like back in uh, october or something of last uh, last fall yep, last fall holy moly but um but we made it um and so this time we we take on kefka by getting through an entire uh, tower um made of you know bits and pieces of previous dungeons apparently um and we face a number of mini bosses, some optional, some requisite, I think, uh, on the way there. Yeah. Um, so how did you break down your, your parties? How did you prepare to, um, to scale this whole Kefka Tower? Yeah, it was, it was quite an ordeal. I took a stab at it last night and found that I was like woefully underleveled. Um, so I took a good hour or two to just get all of my party members up to level 40. Um, cause at that point they were all like 33 to 37, I guess, um, which was not high enough. Um, so I beat up some dinosaurs and got everybody up to speed. Um, and then I took at least one stab at it and failed cause I didn't get to the save point in time. So it, it was a bit of a, bit of an ordeal just getting even very far into the, the dungeon. Uh, but the breakdown that I basically had, like, Every time that I've picked a party for the for a while now, it's basically come down to one spellcaster, so like Terra or Realm or Strago or Sellas, um, and then one heavy hitter, somebody to use the Genji glove and the offering now that I've got it, so either Cyan or Sabin or Shadow in most cases, um, and then one sort of backup spellcaster who's all about the speed, which is usually like Setzer or Locke, um, and then one person to act as tank and just take all the damage as much as possible. So Edgar or Mog or Gogo in some cases. So that was kind of the breakdown that I had. Um, like it was Terra and Cyan and um, I think it was Locke and Gogo in the first team and then, you know, Sellas and Sabin, again, like one spellcaster, one heavy hitter. The last team was a little weird because it was both Realm and Strago, two double casters, um, Strago doing the backup. But it worked. Like, everybody was high enough powered. Um, and for most of the level, I was swapping items and espers every time that I switched parties, which yeah. is time consuming, but means that you've got the best stuff all the time. Um, but towards the end, right before I fought the the three statue bosses, I sort of like got everyone set and had a, like every bit of equipment uh, set on somebody and all 12 party members ready to fight. Um, yeah, it's extremely tedious having to re-equip everybody, keep track mm -hmm. of who's learning what spells at this point if you're, if you're still yeah. learning spells with people, which I, I definitely was throughout this dungeon. Um, was learning some of the final spells and you also get the last esper here most yeah, likely crusader yeah if you've been killing dragons at every opportunity there's two or three remaining dragons in yeah. this 
final dungeon. Um, there's some of the best equipment in the game that you get from boss mm-hmm. fights and treasure boxes throughout the dungeon too. So you're like you're Excalibur. Still, yeah, right. You're still like upgrading um, and and again like allocating stuff to people and and keeping track of um, you know who's in your different parties and stuff. But that's mm-hmm. kind of what this whole game has been about, right? Is like customization, um, micromanaging to an extent, uh, but also flexibility, right? You can yeah. Uh, and really have anybody in each party and you can still kind of get away with it. Um, mm-hmm. Although, yeah, some, some set are easier than others. I, I also tried to balance out my parties. Um, didn't ever have Tara and Celis in the same group. Um, right. You know, and, and Edgar and Mog. Yeah. They, they're kind of share a similar skill set, So I kept them separate too, but yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I lost track of all the bosses here. Um, there's so many. There's some that are like reskins, uh, recurring bosses from earlier in the game um, mm-hmm. that uh, ambush you. There's a version of um, Atma weapon again in one of the. Yes. It's like sitting in Kefka's old jail cell um, mm-hmm. with the Back toilet. The, yeah, yeah, <laughs> toilet mall. You can you can fight it and it will turn into a save point, but that's taking a major risk because it's super powerful. Um, yeah. And at that point, I was scared, and I skipped that one. I didn't. I didn't fight Atma a second time. Okay. Um, yeah, I I started with Atma. Like I, after realizing that it was there, and you know, figuring out that it had the save point, uh, I uh, basically like had that party as my first move, so I could you know beat it or die trying, yeah. and then go back and you know immediately try again. But once you've got the save point, then you can you know sit on it with one party and be able to save at any time. Yes. Um, which makes it very helpful. So it was like sit on that save point, have both of the other characters get, or both the other teams get as far as they possibly could, saving all the while. Um, and then once they had progressed as far as could as they could get, then you know move that party off the save point and you know leapfrog your way to the next area. Yeah, um, it's it's brilliant how this dungeon is designed. I think it it's, is. Um, it really is. It's very very cool use of the multiple parties. Um, again, letting you do some things that are probably physically impossible, like you know teleporting your gear back and forth between them. But that's fine. Yeah. Nobody's complaining. <laughs> it's very video gamey, but yeah. And like, it's one of those things that, you know, it's obviously designed so that's not your strategy, but you can totally do it anyway. And, you know, optimal play is definitely, you know, do all the tedious, busy work of getting everything from person to person. Um, But I'm also just impressed with the scope of it. Like nothing like that has happened in a Final Fantasy game since, so far as I know. Um, Like, you know, Seven gives you bone bonus party members but it's pretty rare that they have you ever use more than one party at a time like i think there's maybe one dungeon where they have you use two but that's it um and you know final fantasy 8 you're locked into two parties um and it's like you get opportunities to switch you know who's going with which team at any given moment but that's that's as complex as it gets um only ever two at the most and, you know, games since it's always the same, like the cast is so much smaller um, that, you know, here you have literally 12 party members that you're juggling between in these three, four person teams. Um, and that's basically everyone. Like you have to leave two parties, two party members on the ship if you've got the whole complement. Um, but 
all 12 of them will go into this tower and all 12 of them will fight the final boss. Um, you know, depending on how that fight goes. Um, yeah. That, that was a, I mean, kind of the culmination of course of the whole thing, right? You, mm-hmm. you're, you're splitting up your team, you're switching back and forth between the parties um, to get there and you have to use all three. Like you have to step on different switches and, um, yep. and switch back and forth between them. Um, you can, Obviously, again, get a bunch of treasures and sweet, you know, final end game kind of weapons and armor and, and good stuff uh, by doing this. And then, yeah, you you eventually face the goddess statues. Uh, it's one of the the major bosses along the way here. Um, they are not all goddesses. I, I don't know. Like, I was very surprised yeah. by the forms that they took. Um, and we talked a while ago about you know, realms painting, how it uh, has a very beautiful form and a very scary form. And, and these goddess statues are kind of the same way. They're, um, whether they've always looked this way or not, they, they are personified um, as kind of demons um, mm-hmm. under Kefka's influence anyhow. Um, they still, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It could, like, I, you get the sense when you're seeing the, the statues initially, like, on the floating continent way back in the world of balance that, you know, they, they have different forms. They have sort of different emphases. Um, but there's, like, the one who looks like a traditional beautiful goddess, like an Aphrodite or something. There's one that looks a little bit more demon adjacent. Um, like, they're not all good, even even as early as that. But here, you know, like Sarah remarked, especially about the the goddess statue, that it's you know one part Virgin Mary, one part Aphrodite, and one part Callie. Yeah. Um, like this sort of whole scope of the goddess concept, everything from destroyer to savior to you know mother, like all of that sort of incorporated into this one figure, um, the dark and the light. Yeah, and these—I mean, they—they—they're supposed to sort of form a balance, right? Um, mm-hmm. Seems to be the idea, at least, uh, when they're in the fro- floating continent before Kefka mars the the world and remakes it in his image. Right? They—they they have this kind of tenuous uh, balance to prevent a war uh, like that that destroyed the world last time, right? And mm-hmm. um, now Kefka has upset that balance, but he's replaced it with something else, and. He talks about this when you finally get to him. He has a lot of dialogue um, yes. to kind of explain what he's up to, right? I think the line that stuck out to me is he's going to create a monument to non-existence. Yes. Something like that, he says. Um, so he's, yeah, he's using these statues. He's using their power. He has put himself in the place of them as arbiter, right? The the light of, of justice or of judgment, rather, right, is, is his... Right, yeah. um, purview now and, and yeah he is he is accomplishing something here and you're you're trying to mess it up it's like how he seems to see it um mm-hmm. so your your whole party uh is ranged against him and he's all alone right um yeah but in response he raises up again a series of bosses that you have to fight before you actually reach uh kefka so yeah as much as the final dungeon is kind of awesome uh and in and, and its design, um, the very final battle really uh, you know, recapitulates that in some ways, um, brings it all together. Um, 
I, yeah, I died a number of times fighting this final battle. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. On different parts of it. Like I, I, I died in the very first part, the first time I died on one of the later forms. The next time I tried, I died against Kefka. He wrecked me with his, uh, the spell that drops you to one HP and then followed yeah. up with a, you know, a multi-party spell attack. I think an yep, that one can do it. <laughs> and I was like, what, what am I even supposed to do? But, but it really, I mean, the thing is you can replay it over and over and yeah, you have to go through his whole spiel again and again, but I kind of think that's probably good for you. Like yeah. to have to hear that, like you, you have to sort of wrestle with his, his ideology as much as his um, mm -hmm. his power, right? That's kind of what the game I think is about. It's about nihilism, really. And yeah, and, and fighting it. Like, yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, his whole his whole point in that speech, that monument to non-existence, it's accompanied by you know all these promises to destroy life. Um, that you know, destruction isn't worthwhile if it doesn't destroy these precious lives. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, Bless you. But yeah, like he keeps stressing, you know, he he envisions a world of non-existence, a world that is not. Uh, like I think of Mephistopheles in Goethe's Faust when he says, you know, I am the spirit of, of nihilism, of non-existence. Um, I am that which, you know, for the, the spirit of destruction, I think he calls himself. Um, and, and that's kind of like what Goethe envisions. Like you think of the devil as trying to convert everyone, like turn them to his way, but he sees it as being like opposed to existence itself, um, interested only in wiping everything out and leaving nothing because that is a more pure or a better world than the ugly one that we live in now. Um, and that's definitely like, invoked by kafka like for him it's more it's more of a joke than it is even for mephistopheles and, and goethe but you know th there's a very clear connection between the two uh, like it's something that i suspect would be worth investigating especially you know seeing it in hindsight and seeing kafka's development from like the crazed scientist to this point where he literally wields you know this nearly omnipotent power yeah well, yeah, I mean, I guess the first, the sorts of things we see him doing early in the game, you know, poisoning Doma, um, uh, going after the Esper in uh, Narsh, and mm -hmm. basically burning down Figaro, right, uh, yep. and, and taking over South Figaro. The, the kinds of things he does there, um, he's using an existing conflict, um, but he's not really working within its parameters you know he's yeah. not playing by the rules um he's he's got bigger fish to fry it seems like all along uh and it's a matter you know i think the big turning point right is when he uh starts to absorb the espers um mm -hmm. yeah and and uh takes down uh, leo right um in in that kind of climactic moment uh he yeah, he seems to reveal that he is um, unlike anyone else. Uh, he's not exactly, I guess, interested in uh, create like dominating the world so much at this point. It's uh, it's his kind of artistic, aesthetic pleasure in in destruction for its own sake. 
Um, and I think too, you know, based on based on the environment that we see both in the tower and in the final boss, um, there's this like you stressed, you know, the turning point is when he starts absorbing the espers. Um, and I think that that's kind of crucial to understanding Kafka in the second half of the game because, you know, the boss fight that you fight, it's literally this mass of different, like, demons and gods. And, you know, it, it's as though he's incorporated them all into himself, like, destroyed their identities and made them a part of him instead. Uh, like, as much as, you know, you, you fight that battle and then, like, at the last stage... You know, it's like the top of the giant pillar monster that you've been fighting, and then it's like Kefka himself comes down from heaven, archangel style, and you fight him. Um, there's also kind of the sense that that is also him. Um, like this is as much Kefka as everything, as you know, the the apparent individual that you encounter here. Um, like there's there's something very Borg-ish about it. Like he's just assimilating all of these beings, anything that is differentiated from him. He turns it into him. Um, and the tower itself just looks like this giant mishmash. Like you said, it's got bits and pieces of other dungeons lying around in it, especially um, the old, you know, tapestries and, and rooms in the, the Imperial capital, like the, the prison cell where Atma is hanging out, but also the Magitech research facility, all like the places where he, he used to keep the espers. Um, there's a, there's a sense in which, you know, this is, like a cobbled together history of Kafka's life and career um, that he has memorialized, like you said, a monument to non-existence. Mm -hmm. um, and he's, it's like, you know, even the world itself, the tower that he built and the way that he's like destroyed the world by recreating it in his own image, reversing, like taking what was, what was low and making it high, taking what was high and making it low. Um, rearranging continents like you, you get this sense that you know where the whole strength of the party comes from all of these different people with different perspectives working in cooperation Kefka is about just devouring power wherever he finds it making it part of himself yeah. um, and your triumph over him is very much like a triumph of diversity over a sort of mono like monolithic perspective um the you know and you can't help but see the religious overtones here like it's so obvious between the goddesses the the statues that you fight that are themselves sort of portrayed as gods to again kafka like descending in angelic form to this you know like almost totemic pile of monsters and, and bodies that, that is his, his sort of boss that he raises up against you. There is this sense that you're like fighting against some sort of twisted, perverse God um, as you're, as you're doing this. And, you know, this is, this is the struggle of humanity against a fate that is opposed to it. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's kind of a joke at this point, like that all final fantasy games are just, you know, you play as a bunch of teenagers taking down God or Satan. Um, but you know, there is something potent about that myth and the recurrence of it in all of these games just underscores that potency. Mm -hmm. Um, 
as much as you know Kefka is very much his own thing like he is very much very much an identifiable villain in a series that frequently loses track of its villains and sort of makes them super abstract by the end of the game um, Kefka becomes an abstraction like he goes from a character to an archetype to just a concept in its own right um, he goes from destroying out of, out of his own sort of perverse pleasure and joy to just being a force for destruction in its own right. Right. Yeah. And a lot of the Final Fantasy games, it will be this kind of power from outside of the world, right? Um, that is manipulating people. And so, you know, the enemy that you're facing throughout the rest of the game turns out not to be the final boss. It's mm -hmm. kind of this twist, you know, and, and you face this, this ultimate power. But in this game, yeah. Kepka sort of makes himself into that power. Uh, yeah. It doesn't come from outside. It comes from, from him. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and he creates, yeah, um, all sorts of uh, preliminary forms of that. And, and yeah, I really like the idea of the tower itself um, being this kind of uh, greatest hits album of, of what he's all about. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I really think one of the forms of the final boss uh, as you're, you're sort of ascending it, it has these four human bodies and two of them look like they're kind of crucified there. Um, yes. They're, they're very, uh, I don't know, Rodan or Michelangelo sort of inspired uh, in their, their style. Um, but the actual structure of the bodies, the, the pose that they're in is essentially a, uh, a, a, a a crucifixion, a, a hanging pose there. Um, so there's that, you know, heavily Christian image. But then the next one up is um, kind of reclining, uh, a very Madonna-esque picture. So yeah, this this kind of mishmash of different uh, religious, I don't know, traditions, um, iconography at least, uh, is, mm -hmm. is sort of being alluded to there. And, and a very Eastern kind of deity that's like reclining, almost uh, Buddha-like, you know, and uh, and rest uh and gosh yeah it's it's really hard for me to um to keep straight you know all the different forms of this boss because it's such a rush to try to, to try to get yeah. them before they kill you like i think the best strategy in this fight is is honestly like you know just trying to deal as much damage as quickly as possible um yeah otherwise you're, you're in for a, a long long battle um so yeah. yeah what was your strategy here in the final <laughs> boss yeah fortunately like I, I went full a team on them and i had realm with the gem box and she had learned ultimate at this point i had strago who had learned both flare and meteor by now um thank you to crusader for giving us um you know a new, a new another way of learning meteor and very quickly at that oh yeah um and then I had Mog doing the, the tanking thing. He was even carrying the muscle belt. So he had something like 4,500 health at this point. Um, and then I think Cyan was doing the, the Genji glove offering bit with his fancy new sky katana that he got from one of the, from one of the God or the statue bosses and one of the other really powerful katanas like the scimitar. Um, so I was consistently hitting like every turn with each character, it was something like, you know, 20,000 damage to all 
targets with between Ultima and Meteor, um, you know, backing off when necessary to heal. But, you know, he, he used that move that brought us all down to one health and I just like a couple of cure twos and I was back up to full. Um, and it, it wasn't hard to just, you know, tell realm, okay, so you're going to use cure three and then Ultima this time. <laughs> um, and you're still doing a pile of damage, but you're also bringing everybody in the party back up to full health. Um, so yeah, that like, if you can call it a strategy, cause it very much was just throwing everything at him at once, like no holds barred, just use Osmos whenever necessary to bring it back. But like Rome was expending something like 160 mana because, you know, double Ultima at full cost is, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, at that point she had 500 mana, so I could do like four Ultimas and then do an Osmos to recharge and keep going. Um, and that was enough. Like, but yeah, I, I think I think if you end up playing defense, you're you're gonna lose in this yeah. fight. Yeah. Like the only way to beat him is to just go in with your scariest, most powerful people and just do as much damage as possible and not worry about the consequences. Just like go. Um well, it's just, interesting. I mean, thematically it's very it's it's very contradictory in a way, right? Like, cause the, the characters all talk about like what they've learned through their journey, um, how they care about one another. But yeah, when it comes down to it, the best way to win this fight is just to do Ultima <laughs> over and over. Yep. Um, so I, I find that kind of ironic and delightful. Um, but there is another way the game sort of suggests that you approach this, which is it lets you, it lets you order your party um, up to 12 members uh, and if any one of them dies in a battle, uh, as long as you win that stage of the battle, then the next person in order will replace them for the next part of the fight. Um, so this is a really unique moment in this game um, where you know, you're using more than four members of the party in one battle, so to speak, because mm -hmm. uh, it's the yeah. sort of stages of this battle. Um, and the, you know, the new members of the party do come in at full health. So, you know, if you did get wrecked by, you know, one of the attacks or one of the teams, if, if somebody got you with, you know, the, the bringing everybody down to one health and then knocking them out one by one, you know, you come in and you're refreshed. Like that's the advantage of having as many party members as you do is you can just keep bringing them in. Um, so, and it does, you know, suggest that teamwork. Like, it's just another emphasis, you know, it's something that Kefka can't do. Um, like, there is no replacement for Kefka. Kefka must remain as strong as he is, because if he goes down, there's, there's no one to pick up after him. Um, but with you, you know, your entire party, admittedly, like, if the whole party gets wiped, you're done. But if you can keep even one person standing to the next stage, fight your way through, you've got reinforcements. There are refreshments waiting to come in, um, which is neat. Like, and, and I know that other final boss fights have done the same. Like Final Fantasy VIII did that as well, where you know each of your six party members, um, if one of them was out for long enough, it would just get yanked and get replaced with, with the next one in line. Um, but even so, like it's a powerful mechanic. Like it's a powerful reminder of, you know, it, it's not, you're not alone in this um you are one of your whole team you you can do this um you will have backup exactly and you know the the power that each person has 
represented in their espers is kind of not replaceable, right? Like each, I don't know, did you use any espers in this fight at all or did you just go straight? Yeah, I did not use any summons. Um, so I, I just like blew right through. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also, you know, the, that's the thing about the espers. You can only ever use them once in a fight. Yeah. Um, so, you know, relying on them is, is a dangerous practice. Like they're, they're a great wild card to sort of throw in and, and mess things up. But, you know, if it's not like Final Fantasy VIII where you can just keep on casting them again and again and again, and there's actually great advantages to, to relying on them. Um, instead, you know, the espers, the espers are a tool. Um, and, and as broken as that sounds, because, you know, like the game has emphasized throughout, you know, they are, they are individuals in their own right. They have lives. You know, there, there is a tragedy um, to losing them or even to the fact that, you know, in order to equip them, they have to die. Um, but at the same time, you know, as the credit sequence rolls, like the, and even leading up to the fight with Kefka, it's emphasized you know, if they destroy the, the statues, if they destroy Kefka, um, magic will disappear from this world. The espers will be gone. And the magicite does, like, evaporate. You see the last crystal destroyed as you are fleeing from the tower. Um, and I think one of the things that it's emphasizing is you can go on without it. Like, you don't need it anymore. Um, magic was useful, but it was also a liability. It was a temptation. It was why Kafka committed all these atrocities in the first place. Um, it may have done more harm than good when everything was said and done. And, you know, even from like the first panel of text that you encounter in this game, like warning you about the magic wars and the, the problems that it caused and how badly people are searching for these things and how much damage they're willing to do to get them. Um, I guess the game is sort of asking like, was it worth it in, at all at any point? Um, like the one, the one moment that it seems to give pause is when you realize that Terra is also going to disappear because she's half Esper. Um, but fortunately, that's not how it goes down. Like, there, she has a way out. Um, but not because of her magic, but because of her humanness. Um, yeah, the, so the, the credits are really cool. Uh, they go through each of the characters. Right? Yep. Um, almost like a, a kind of film, you know, montage. Yeah, it's got like the grainy quality and it goes black and white. You know, the, the filters have been interesting throughout the game and this this is one of those moments where it's especially striking. Yeah, it's very artistic the way the camera pans over this um, kind of series of iconic symbolic images for each character, right? So um, I don't know. It, I found it interesting the order that it goes in as well. Um, and, and the way that it uh, kind of puts a, a closure to each of the characters' arcs that we've been watching. Um, so I think it starts with this, like, uh, well, it, it should be said, right, the, how, how striking the music has been this whole time, too, right? We yes. can't neglect the kind of majesty of the, um, the final battle theme music. Oh, yeah, the dancing mad theme with... Oh, just, I was telling Sarah, like, it, it's got to be one of Nobuo Iyamatsu's masterpieces. Just the whole, the way that, you know, each 
component of the music will play for each stage of the boss fight. And when you progress past each stage, the next part of the music plays and it's all seamlessly woven together. So, you know, there's no hiccups. There's no like hard breaks until the fourth stage where they insist on doing the thus bake Zarathustra intro again um, for some mad reason before getting to like the final music, which is very, which is actually rather more restrained than most of the boss fight music um and you know it sort of invokes that that like organ holiness being in a cathedral um as somebody is playing one of those good old protestant hymns um and just you know the the austerity and the awe inspiring quality of that music um which is something again it's very common like all the boss fights have have one of those tracks in there um but rarely is it so integrated with the way that the actual fight progresses um like it's not just a sudden cut and now we're playing the next track for the next stage it's no like it's all one continuous track one continuous musical work um that'll just repeat as necessary yeah yeah, and that's that's what it made me think of. Like, there's this kind of insistence on um, connection, wholeness, right? Uh, organic yep. kind of unity, and yeah, we're we're pitted up against a a really negative embodiment of that in Kefka and his machinations there. Um, but yeah, when your party prevails, you know, finally on whichever attempt it is, uh, for me, like the fourth or fifth, for you the first. Uh, you, you pop back out and so from that kind of bright you know horizon uh, sort of thing up at the very top of the world where you're fighting Kefka then you, you plunge back into darkness um, these very artful kind of diagonal shafts of light light up each of these um, items on the table in turn and it starts with this book the book has pages that blow um, open and then it sort of scrolls over and you start with a samurai a katana, right? A yeah, the katana of Cyan. Cyan Garamond. And they suddenly have yeah. last names for some reason. <laughs> so. Yeah, for the first time, they all have last names. Like, okay. only a couple of them we've seen before. But um. So, Cyan has to hit a switch to rescue Edgar. Um, and so, he has to overcome his fear of machines. But, of course, he's been he's been trained, you know, he's, he's, he's able to do it. Um, he's prepared. Spectacularly um, steps on that platform switch thingy. So, you know, playing, playing video games, right. It's all about hitting buttons. Yep. So Cyan has learned to, to step on buttons there. Um, then comes Setzer Gabbiani. He's got the cards, the playing cards, and his challenge is uh, kind of a, a flip of the coin, right? Which door should they yep. But he doesn't follow it. Like <laughs> that's what's what I found so striking. Like he he flips the coin and he ushers everybody to the left, and he's like, "Wait!" And he turns him right, and the left door blows open because you know it's like a backdraft situation. He's like, sometimes you just have to go with your gut. Like he's not betting anymore. Um, which you know, I, I think it's honestly one of like the best climaxes for any of the characters in the end credits. Is you know, sets her sets her his grown past his affinity for gambling in a way um, like now he's willing to gamble on his gut. Now he's willing to follow his instincts. Um, he's willing to trust himself. Yeah. And, and it's implied that this is a kind of 
you know, something he's learned from coming to terms with his lost friend, Daryl, right? He says, yeah. he's learning to sound like her. And then it flows really nicely into the next, which is the, 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 the couplet of Edgar and Sabin, mm -hmm. uh, whose names, Ronnie, Renee, uh, are picked up in Xenogears, actually, kind of interestingly, as the names of the, the princes of the desert in that game. But so Sabin, um, you know, hulks out, grabs a beam that's falling down, right? Just like he did back in the town when we met him in the world of ruin. Um, yeah, and uh, I mean, Edgar just being sort of the gentleman uh, as always. Uh, yeah, he's busy opening the door. <laughs> he doesn't even have a line. <laughs> just, you know, yeah, being, being noble and all that good stuff. Um, and I think Edgar and, and Mog, they really do have a kind of similar, at least the way I was using them was to do dragoon lancing. Um, so Mog is next. Um, he, the way that you meet him for your party at least is that he's hanging off a precipice by the Tritok Esper. And so here he is, you know, hanging off again and you have to uh, scoop him almost like a crane game, you know, at, a, right. at, a, at an arcade, one of those old, so you, you, I think it's again Edgar who drops the crane down mm -hmm. to, um, to lift up the toy Mog out of the abyss there. And Mog is very offended, like yeah. he's very upset about his hair, because <laughs> <laughs> he, of course, is sort of the um, the mascot for this game. Uh, right. Uh, and then, of course, Umaro's next, right? Mog's Yeti friend, uh, and this is where it gets interesting for me, at least, in terms of the like. Uh, interaction with the environment because mm -hmm. Umaro instead of opening a door or operating a switch like changes the actual background and makes a path where one did not exist yeah he just plows through the wall <laughs> so cool yeah I so wish that this was a, a feature of actually using Umaro in the game that he could do something mm -hmm. like it would be so cool but it's just some sort of extra here at the end yeah um, yeah, then go go. I didn't use yeah. I didn't use Umaro in the final battle. I didn't use Gogo -Go in the final battle. I, I just never got his stats up at all. So anyway, Gogo -Go, similarly here, you know, has to push a button. Uh, very um, one one of the very first things you do in Final Fantasy VII is this exact thing is pushing buttons at the same time as mm -hmm. another NPC within the game. So uh, his mimic skill, of course, being kind of. Uh, laid upon here but uh, i also like the joke at the end of it like he has to mirror sellers as they're pushing the button and then you know they save the couple of party members who are on the the troublesome platform but then they all run off and gogo -Go not is still mimicking sellers and inadvertently runs right into a pit and falls <laughs> um so you know th there's like a pitfall to this mimicking behavior and you know he, I'm pretty sure you don't see him again after that. Like that may be up, the end of Gogo -Go for our for our interest in the game. Yeah, that's how he ends up inside of interdimensional monsters, I guess. Um, Presumably, like I'm not terribly concerned, but <laughs> I'm sure he can take care of himself. Well, and, uh, but it is a silly moment. Yeah, and and so his, I guess we haven't been mentioning like the items that we see for each of these people for mm -hmm. Sabin and. Edgar, it's the coin, again, it's the coin yeah. that they flip to decide who would be king. Um, of course, the trick coin. Mog, it's the statue with the, the little tiny moogles that top off of it and go running around like the like a 
kind of German clock or something. Yeah, uh, it, it's very Totoro to me, the treaty uh, image mm-hmm. there. Um, yeah, they're like these kind of, I don't know, yeah, magical figurines or something, uh, a toy that comes to life, you know. Right. Then Umaro is this skull crossbones. Metal. Yeah, the totem that you that you see when you first meet him, and it scares all the little Moogle figurines away. Yeah, and and Gogo is just a kind of a cloak and helmet. Um, yeah, his mask, which is mysterious. I feel like he's, you know, kind of a a version of Kefka in a way. To me, at least, he's a, a clown that didn't turn evil. Um, Gao is the diving helmet. Remember his his mm-hmm. treasure that you have to kind of find in order to progress and he's got it at the start of the game um now he also manipulates the background scenery in a way that's really cool he kind of like surfs down off the side um Mm -hmm. and pushes the others after him (laughs) yep he found a shortcut shortcut exactly um which is again yeah like playing with the kind of limitations of the game here when you know we're not controlling anything uh, the game doesn't have to make itself make sense at this point for the player it just gets to sort of freely goof around so so we're almost out um lock of course some of the heavy hitters remain lock has his lock and sellers and sellers the the roses right um Mm -hmm. uh and they're kind of a pair you know so she almost falls he rescues her kind of overcoming that terrible tragedy that befell him in his earlier treasure hunting days yep um, but she falls because she stops to pick up the scarf yes a very drops the scarf. yeah like orpheus moment there right mm-hmm. she's, she's almost held back um yeah yeah and then tara Tara's item is hard for me to see. It's like a, a pendant, I think, and some wine glasses or something. I think uh, so, yeah. So she, I mean, she has this kind of dual nature. Um, she is in this in this part of the game. You know, she's in her esper form to lead the party out. Um, she speaks to her father here. Uh, Maduin, the esper, tells her that, again, like we've heard a number of times, right, the consequences saving the world is also that magic will disappear um yeah and this is kind of the tension at the end of the game here like is this going to be a, a kind of sacrifice on her part um uh we've already lost gogo but by golly are we going to lose tara as well <laughs> yeah uh, so then um for whatever this is where i kind of get surprised that these three are the kind of final ones it's realm Shadow and Strago, last of all, Strago being the book, Shadow the um, the Ninja Star, and Realm the paintbrush. Um, but they're a family, it turns out, right? Um, Shadow is Realm's dad, uh, as Strago her grandpa. Um, so, what did you make of Shadow's kind of farewell here? I, this one gets me every time. Like I tear up every time I see it. Um, Part of it's just the music. Like what they do with his theme is just heartbreaking. Like the way that they just, you know, it's, they, his theme, and you encounter it like the couple of times in the game, it has this sort of like 
quasi western you know mm -hmm. outlaw strolling in a town quality um but they they just swell it out into this like classical almost symphonic um dramatic music um and you know he he's like they're all making for the exit as usual like the, the whole thing is just this one mad scramble to get out of Kefka's tower um but he stops and takes a different route yeah. an interceptor of course the loyal dog follows him and he's like nope you need to keep on going um and he he is making his exit um he is leaving um and the the comment that he makes like he's speaking to one of the figures from his own past and says um i'm gonna do it right this time like i'm i'm going to start from start from scratch um do it all over again um and you get you know so much of shadow's character up until this point has been about regret like what little we get to see of him um his whole moment when he joins up with the empire right before the floating continent rises um his whole his whole attitude on the floating continent itself is that you know he's responsible for this he has made this mistake and now he has to fix it he's not a part of the team like he's never been a part of the team you know even from the first times that you get him he will always leave as soon as he feels like it um but now now he's been a part of the team and you haven't been able to question that you can pull him up whenever you want to but now now is his time to leave now he has fixed what he has done he has made everything right and now he can live his own life he can do things his way he's recognized that you know the life of the mercenary was an error it's led him into even darker places than he was before um but this idea that you know in the new world he will be able to be a new person like i think that that's very powerful um you know he perhaps more than any of the other characters achieves redemption um even though that redemption is kind of only self perceived and only self assigned like nobody faulted him for his role in the floating continent except him but he wasn't willing to move past it and now now he is um and it figures that it takes the form of another departure like in some ways he's very different now he's ready to make himself new in some ways he's exactly the same guy he always was just taking off at the drop of a hat so you know it, it's very bitter um his leaving the rest of the group not being able to participate in the happy times ahead of them not being able to go back and make the world the way it was because for shadow that isn't good enough like he doesn't want the world back the world never wanted him he has to make a new one um he has to find a new home a new world to live in um like it was bad under Kafka, but it was bad before too. Yeah, that's that's an interesting take on it. Like I, I see this as him giving his life in in a way. Like I, I don't, I don't see him going off to to start a new life um, mm -hmm. separate from the party, but rather to join his 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 dead friend who he could be some way betrayed or or actually killed i don't i never like pieced together all of shadow's backstory um 
but I take it that the person he's speaking to there is is dead and he's going to join them. Like he's chosen yeah. to, yeah, um, bow out from the future uh, of, of the living and instead um, trying to you know, close his, his role in the story. Um, and, and that's, I mean, again, I haven't seen the whole of Shadow's backstory either, so I, I can't say for sure. Um, but, you know, you do get, it is met very much a departure and it is very much final. And honestly, the difference between this being suicide and this being a new life for Shadow is pretty marginal. <laughs> yeah, that's the interesting thing. I think either way you take it, it sort of comes to the same thing, which is that you yeah, know, he's so um, so stuck with something that happened in the past that he's not going to, um, you know, just sort of celebrate. Now it's it's much more complicated for him, um, and. I find it kind of interesting that he forms the interlude between Realm and Strago, right? Not just um, chronologically, right? In terms of their ages and and in terms of the generations, but but also just like here in this way that Realm uh, is sort of um, carefree, uh, young, of course, and creative. Strago is very wise, very old, but also very near death. Right. In some way, he's already done everything. Um, and he only sort of hangs on because Realm forces him to. <laughs> she, yeah. Like, that won't let him give up. Um, and yeah, Shadow is somehow separate from all this. Um, nobody's there to, like, force him to keep going. And so he, he chooses not to. Um, he chooses to bow out at this point. And, and Strago is the book but we're also the book somehow. I found that really interesting, right? Like this whole idea of like, you know, getting to start again, right? That's, that's the Final Fantasy games. Every time a new one comes out, you, you start over. Um, mm -hmm. And each of these characters, you can sort of customize freely. They, they can become anything. Um, and so after Strago's name goes across, then, then you, the player that is, are, um, are given a credit there at the end. Um, which I, I really enjoy. I, I think, yeah. you know, that was, that was a, a touching um, moment there at the end. Uh, mm -hmm. And we're still kind of hanging on to see yeah, what's going to happen with Tara, with the rest of the party. Um, nobody seems too concerned about Shadow, but uh, everybody is very worried about Tara, right? She, yes. <laughs> she's flying off. There's a clear hierarchy of, of popularity amongst the party, it seems. Yeah. And so she's in her Esper form flying, um, leading, leading the, the Falcon off, um, you know, in some sense, she's saving everybody. And then this gets juxtaposed with, of all things, the, uh, the people that she was protecting um, back in the destroyed village, uh, the, the girl and um, what's her name? Katarin. Katarin? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and her boyfriend, and she's giving birth. It's it's really clear that's what's happening. <laughs> she's, it is uh, not subtle. Yeah, uh, it's wild though. Like of all the things, um, but it is like sort of the most heroic possible um, action here, right? Um, yeah. And that's kind of what Tara has been. Um, I don't know, symbolizing all along, um, wrestling with like her. Her very existence is um, this kind of mystery of, of um, 
births, right, in life. Um, and so, but also, like when Madowin speaks to her, you know, as they're running out of out of Kefka's tower, he stresses, you know, like your Esper side is going to disappear. That like everything magical is vanishing. But if your human side is attached to someone or something deeply enough, you will hang on. Right. Um, and you know, for half of this game, we've sort of figured that that was that was going to be Locke. Like Tara and Locke have this erstwhile romance that is very much overshadowed by Sellas and Locke later. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the obvious connection that the game is making here is that it's not Locke at all. It's Katarin. It's the children. It's yeah. the people that she's chose to protect um, in the wake of Kafka's destruction. Um, that's the connection. That And the juxtaposition here makes it just that much more clear. Um, Tara is hanging on because she has taken this this maternal role. She has decided to protect both the party that you know she has been working with to fight Kafka, but also the people who she has chosen to protect from Kafka by fighting him. Yeah. Um, the orphans, the children, the family of Katerin and, and her husband, and now this this newcomer into the world. Um, and in the same way that you're you're talking about the generations of Strago and Shadow and Realm. You know, the old man at the end of his life, Shadow choosing to, like, abandon himself and his past because, you know, it it's all done for him. And then Realm standing at the beginning of hers, well, now you have the fourth and final stage, this birth, this brand new life. Yeah. Um, this, and, you know, it, it's not subtle, <laughs> Um, that like with the destruction of Kafka comes this new world, this regeneration and with it new life. Um, like the, the actual birth itself, the first time you see the, the child being held by his father, it's juxtaposed with scenes of the world being renewed, flowers growing and buildings being rebuilt that were destroyed in the world of ruin and whole towns sort of coming back together and starting to experience what they used to have. Um, the world is being remade and it is now freed from Kafka's destructive nihilistic pall. Um, and it isn't the same as going back to what it was, though it's very close. Like a lot of those shots could very much just be the world of balance um, all over again. It is sort of going back to what it used to be, but you know, at the same time, you have this this baby being born as emphasis of you no, know, this this is a new thing. This is a new generation, a new approach, a new world, one without magic, one where you know all the temptations, all the destructive power of you know the world of balance right at the end there, those are gone too. Um, there's a chance, maybe a small one, but still a chance for peace and prosperity, uninterrupted for who knows how long. Yeah, and I think that is sort of the idea of childhood, right? And of the kind of peace that comes of playing these these games and taking a kind of um, moment to reflect on them, right? Like all of that occupies a kind of ideal realm where these things are possible, right? Um, and the end of this game is very extended uh, as as credits mm-hmm. go for these these old games. This is incredibly uh, 
you know, ornate, uh, yes. very, very beautifully orchestrated. Um, it ties together all the characters' themes, does variations on them, uh, and then kind of gives us these images from, from earlier in the game and of kind of things that are impossible within the game, right? Um, mm -hmm. The kind of um, graphics of flying over the world with the, the birds and um, Tara's hair flowing out behind her is like a unique sprite there. At the mm -hmm. end, um, you know, the waterfalls, the forest, uh, as you mentioned, all the rebuilding process, right? So it's all this stuff um, that, you know, you can, you can continue to imagine, I guess, within a hopeful frame of mind, like, yeah, these characters going on and um, happily ever after sort of thing. Um, but the, the Final Fantasy games, they all kind of leave you with an end screen that just kind of pauses um, on an infinite loop of, of stars. Mm. Um, it's like you're, you're sort of sailing uh, uh, Earth's eye view of, of its sort of progress around the sun or something like that. Um, you're, you're going off into, into infinitude. Um, I always found this really, really moving as a kid because I would get to the end of these games and I would wait to see if there was something else. You know, right. you can sit there and let this just kind of wash over you and it's playing the prelude, you know, yeah. and the stars are going by. And it's just, it's the most soothing and yet also disconcerting feeling of like completion and also wanting more, right? Um, yeah. And you can always just like play over again, of course, but but yeah, I, what what are your what are your feelings now playing this game and, and getting to the end? Yeah, there were a couple things that I noticed in in the credits leading up to it that I did want to sort of like point out um, before we talk about that star field and what that means. Um, one of the things that I like I know that we spent a lot of time talking about all those cliff scenes, like the the people jumping off of cliffs, either you know suicidally like Sellas or to get the story moving like. Uh, cyan and I was really struck that when the airship picks up Terra like when Terra falls out of the sky and sets her sort of like steers the ship to catch her um, you see it from the perspective of a bunch of kids standing on the cliff above the waterfalls yeah. um, like that's the last cliff shot in the game and you know instead of being a shot of despair or a shot of isolation like cyan on his mountain it's a shot of of hope of rescue um of you know you get you immediately get the sense that like these kids are watching this and they have only the slightest understanding of the story that's going on around them <laughs> um and you know it's it's like a rich a rich return to that same shot, that same image that we've seen over and over and over again, a, a really fulfilling close, like closing to that. Um, and the other thing that I, that I was really struck by was the fact that it's Setzer's theme that plays during the second half of the credits, like as they're flying the airship over the land and all these impossible shots, like beautifully rendered in 16 bit graphics um, with like the birds flying around and everything like, the whole end sequence after, you know, they play all the themes and they play through all the plot and they give you all the relevant story information. It's very much about liberation, like about being free to enjoy this world the way that it was meant to be, to just fly through the air and not 
be worried about doom gaze or you know some horrible nightmarish monster lurking around the corner or you know kefka killing people while you dawdle like instead you're just going like it's all the best parts of fantasy um all the most sort of like carefree and exciting parts and just you know it's it's relaxing in a way but it's also exhilarating and exciting and just you know, you, you just wonder what's over the horizon. Like, you just want to keep speeding forward and seeing what this new world has to offer. Um, and it's, you know, after that that you get the end screen and the star field and the prelude. Um, and, you know, like, e- each Final Fantasy game has their, their own sort of tone as it ends. Um, like, what sort of they ultimately rest on, the, the sort of closing note. Um, but they almost all conclude with that prelude, like you pointed out. And I think, you know, as much as, like you stress the wanting more, for me, it always feels more like like the time between. Um, like we talked a little bit a while ago, like long, long ago, back in like the first couple of, of discussions that we had about this game, we had that thing where like there were the three different groups that had gotten separated. Like, you know, there was the raft and Sabin jumped off the raft and then she got carried downstream. And meanwhile, like Tara and, and her posse were continuing to narsh and, and then, you know, somebody else was doing something else. And, and we, you have to like navigate Mog across a black screen. There's a save point there and you get to decide who you're going to follow. Right. Um, that is what it reminded me of. Mm-hmm. Um, like the sort of metaphysical, waiting room um and where you know in and at that stage of the game it's very much like okay we we just need you know a game solution to how do you pick which one to proceed with but here at the end it's bigger than that it's like so what game do you play now um where do you go from here are you going to go outside are you going to play through it again are you going to turn it off and never come back are you you know that's a moment of real choice like choice that extends beyond the boundaries of the game that like the game is sort of encouraging you to go ahead and close the book on this um not to not to do it too fast like stay as long as you want this place is a comfortable place like no pressure no no judgment no you know urgency um instead you know sit with what you've done let it sink in think of all of all that has gone past all that you've accomplished all the things that the characters have done where they are all where they all are at this point in time what the world could be like but also know that you know we're done telling this story anything else at this point is what you decide um and that infinitude that the star field like to me that's always that's indicative of you know being in that between place, you know, closing the book and letting it sit on your lap before you go to bed or pick up the next or whatever it is that you're going to do next. Um, it's, you know, sitting in a calm, still place while you rest with what is done and think about what is to come. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, that's really well put. I, I really like the idea of us being like, yeah, Mog in that, um, in that darkness, which is the, um, the transition between 
parties and um, adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it strikes me that, that that scene of the waterfall is, well, all of these, these images of nature that come up here, like the forest is the phantom forest. The, the waterfalls are the ones that Bannon and Tara's team are going down. And, and the um, cliff over the waterfall is the one that Sabin just like leaps off of. Yep. And everyone's like, what did he just do? Like, what? <laughs> but yeah, yep. It's a beautiful, yeah. And so I think you'd only notice that probably if you, you know, you get to the ending credits and then you at some point go back and play again. Um, mm. Only then would you sort of have that, that frame of reference um, right, because that's prior to any of the other you know cliff scenes that that we do get later in the game, um, and sort of an outlier. And yeah, I mean, um, do, do do you think this game is making a statement about the the relative sort of weight of um, magic and technology? That you know, it's sort of suggesting that these things have a a kind of balance between them, um, where wherein you know the ending credits, like you say, it, it sort of ends on, on technology, on Setzer, on human ingenuity and, and perhaps intuition as well. Um, but, but that magic is not possible. It's something that only leads to conflict. Um, what, what's our final sort of take on the, the magic theme running through this game? Yeah, I'm not sure, honestly, like, it seems because it is so much a part of the game because it is woven in like it is the first thing you encounter and sort of its disappearance is the last thing that happens. Um, like I can't help but think that it is this major component. Um, but if there, it's kind of hard to read a single message about it. Like magic is a, is like I said, a tool. It's something you use throughout the game and it does define certain characters like Terra, Realm, um, and, and Sellers are unique initially because they can use magic in these powerful ways. But you know, then you get espers and now everyone can use it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's something sort of artificial about that. Something also kind of wrong about that because again the espers have to die for you to be able to use this impressive power and you only gain access to magic for all when you know these great tragedies have occurred when you know rama sacrifices himself for your for the sake of your party or when all of the espers in the magitech research facility all die in one big go um, to empower you to take on kafka um, like it's a it's a difficult thing to swallow and, you know, magic by itself in the context of the game doesn't seem to be a bad thing. Like the, the espers seem to have a pretty, pretty good life worked out for themselves before humans start interfering and, you know, everything gets messy when, when the espers are, are exploited. Um, but I think, I think if there's a, a sort of connection to be made here, it's more about the exploitation than it is about the magic, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, like this is, this to me smacks much more of, you know, we screwed this up and now we can't have this thing anymore. And it's best that we don't than it is to be a statement about like, what is the intrinsic value of magic in the world? Um, Cause you know, 
it's just a matter of time until you turn on Final Fantasy VII and there's a new magic system and there's a new way of casting magic, which you know has its own sort of intimate relationship with technology. And then again in eight, and then again in nine, and so on and so forth. Like maybe it's not the same world, but at the very least, Final Fantasy is not done with magic yet. Um, but so much of the way that magic is framed in this game is in the context of exploitation. Kafka absorbing espers, killing them and taking their power or, you know, torturing them to try and extract power from them, um, using magic to control Terra and like uh, sort of reprogram Sela's. Um, magic is very tied into exploitation and control in this game. Um, and whether it's always like that, whether like we see these glimpses of a world where, you know, magic exists without exploitation, the control and the, and the mages like Strago or the espers. Um, but at the time that we're playing, those are bygone eras long lost and unable to be recovered. Um, there is no peaceful cooperation between humans and espers. There is no, like way for magic to return to its natural uncorrupted state. Um, at least, you know, even the end of the game emphasizes like to make, to bring balance back to the world. It's not putting the statues back. It's destroying them yeah. and everything that goes with it. Um, so I, I think, I think the emphasis here is, is less on like the intrinsic magicalness of the world. Like, is it good to have magic or is it not? As it is, you know, a story of magic pushed beyond its uses to the point that it could not be salvaged and therefore had to be sacrificed. Um, like very much a fall story in that way. Like Kefka as Adam, um, magic as the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, no, that's that's what I was thinking about as well as you're saying, you know, it's this this thing that we can't have um, because of the sorts of people that we are, this, this sort of our nature. Um, yeah, it, it becomes an interesting lens on human nature. And that again is, is strongly, I think, implied uh, by the, the childbirth scene mm -hmm. that, that closes the game. Um, uh, I think that's, yeah, that's the thing that Tara gets um, to have this this kind of family uh, of people um, in return for losing her ability to turn into an esper and fly through the air. <laughs> yep. But uh, then with the end, um, there's other stuff. I mean, there's other kind of ways that you can play this game. Um, people have done a lot of interesting glitches and stuff. Uh, I I think we'll probably come back to Final Fantasy games at some point down the line. But now that we're in this in-between point, um, I think we should reveal what what are we playing next? There's a couple of games that we're going to play next, right? Um, yes. What, what um, first? Very much at my suggestion, I'm, I'm going with the Daniel Mullins canon on this one. Um, I know we, we enjoyed our, our little gadabout with Little Inferno um, last year before embarking on this massive undertaking. Um, so I thought I'd channel that a bit. Um, the, the two games by Daniel Mullins are, are Pony Island and uh, The Hex. Um, and they are to be played in that order. Um, okay. So we'll start with Pony Island. 
Um, I'm guessing it'll take us three sessions to get through Pony Island. Um, it is neatly carved into three different bosses, um, and each boss has about an hour of playtime leading up to it, so I think that'll work out nicely. Um, and then the hex is similarly convenient uh, as far as its sort of separations. Um, as the name suggests, it's got six discrete sections, um, each of which is a completely different game. Um, oh. but we'll need a seventh section on that one to talk about the end game. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's my plan. Um, other than that, I don't want to tell you anything because you just gotta you gotta see for yourself what we're dealing with. Because um, you know the the just wildness of what we're dealing with is kind of as much a part of the fun here. Um, so yeah, we'll start with Pony Island. Um, so enjoy enjoy your first run with the ponies. <laughs> and you're you're gradually increasing power and all of the the joy that is to be had in finishing levels with your ponies um and then we'll talk about it next week sweet okay well thanks again ben i we i don't know if we did justice to this game but we oh there's we so much best that we could <laughs> yep yep the time we had and uh i i think um i i certainly gained a new appreciation for these old RPG games. Um, and uh, yeah, looking forward to something totally different for next time on the island. All yep. Right. Thanks again. Take care. You too.